You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Eliza Compton, your host and the interim editor of Campus, Times Higher Education's best practice advice platform. This bonus episode continues our theme of universities' role in fostering civic engagement among their students. If you haven't yet listened to our previous episode, I really encourage you to do so. For this conversation, I had the great privilege of chatting with renowned human rights scholar and award-winning author, Catherine Sickink. Catherine is the Ryan Family Professor of Human Rights Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. She's also faculty co-chair of the Harvard Votes Challenge, a non-partisan initiative that has, since its launch in 2018, promoted student voter registration and turnout and helped build a culture of civic engagement across the university. This collaboration between students, faculty and staff doubled the number of student voters in that first year. And in 2020, 70% of Harvard students voted, a level similar to US states with the highest electoral participation. In this interview, we talk about the origins of Catherine's interest in human rights, what the Harvard Youth Poll reveals about whether students plan to vote, young people savvy around disinformation, and spoiler alert, Catherine tells me it's considerable, and why voting is not just a right, it's a responsibility. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the THE podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I would really like to start by perhaps if you could give us a bit of an idea about your role at the Kennedy School at Harvard. So I'm uh, the Ryan Family Professor of uh, Human Rights Policy here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, and my connection to voting is, of course, one of the human rights that we have is the right to vote. Um, and I uh, got involved with uh, work here on campus called the Harvard Votes Challenge. I was uh, for a number of years, and, and I hope to continue that capacity this year, a faculty co-chair of the Harvard Votes Challenge here at the Kennedy School. And I was involved with other uh, faculty, students, and staff uh, at Harvard also uh, working on the Harvard Votes Challenge. Now, I should just say the Harvard Votes Challenge is a nonpartisan organization uh, in the sense that universities actually in the U.S. have a legal obligation to make registration materials available to their students. And so that's part of our mission uh, and our legal obligation. And so the Harvard Votes Challenge is part of that effort to make sure that all students uh, have uh, registration, voting registration materials made available to them. Fantastic. Well, it certainly sounds like a, um, a great initiative um, and very successful one from what I gather. You have quite deftly introduced uh, a couple of um, topics for our conversation, um, one of which is encouraging students in civic engagement and voting is a big part of that. And also you mentioned your, your background in human rights. I read, I think, in an interview that you did with the Ash Centre that your interest in democracy and human rights actually began in 
Uruguay when you were a student at the University of Montevideo. I know it was a very dark time in the politics of that country. Was there a particular incident that sparked your interest in that time? Um, so I arrived uh, in Uruguay in 1976 as a young undergraduate in an exchange program. Uruguay had been a democracy most of the 20th century, but it had this terrible coup in 1973. And the time I arrived, there was much repression, extensive imprisonment of political opponents and torture. And so what I learned was that Prior to the, the coup in 1973, some of the most idealistic people in the country had just given up on democracy. They thought it was a bourgeois democracy. It just cared about civil liberties and it didn't care about real equality. And so when the military stepped forward to carry out the coup, the, the people you would have hoped would defend democracy uh, had also uh, uh, lost uh, faith in it. Mm. Uh, and so if you wish, when I saw in the United States, when we started having some of these groups of, of sometimes idealistic young people who believe that it's so, that they've lost faith in democracy and in our democracy has gotten so you know bad that they don't even want to vote because they don't want to dignify the democracy with a vote. I think they don't understand what it means, that, what the, peop the young people in Uruguay learned, what it means to live without a democracy where you can't even speak out loud in a cafe without fearing that someone could hear you and arrest you and take you off to prison. Mm, yeah, it's incredibly hard for us to imagine um, living in the free democracies that, that we do. You did mention the connection between the, um, the atmosphere then and maybe some of the concerns that you have now. What's your sense about how young people are feeling in this lead up to the to the 2024 election about democracy and about the necessity right responsibility to vote yeah so luckily eliza we don't have to uh i don't have to rely on my sense of what students think because the uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School, we have something called the Institute of Politics. And every year they do a fantastic youth poll. And so I have in front of me the results from the youth poll that they did. It's a it's a, ran a large random sample. And so we have very reliable sense of what young students are, uh, young people in general and students as well are planning to do. This was done in October, November in the fall. Mm. And what it shows is that the number of young Americans between 18 and 29 years old uh, who will definitely plan to vote uh, uh, for president uh, in 2024 has decreased, okay, from 57% to 49%. So that's, mm. um, that's a worrisome issue. Um, it is good to know that college graduates uh, still plan to vote in at robust levels, okay? So some of the organizing that was done around campuses all over this country to encourage college students to vote has has a legacy still with those college graduates. Um, the uh, however, every year a new a whole and every four years a whole new group of young people enter college and so in some ways you start all over again uh, with uh, those uh, young people. However mm. the the lowest, the group with lowest intention to vote are actually people who are not in college and do not have a degree. 
So there is a correlation between a university education and, and voter behaviour by the, by the sounds, at least in the United States? Yes, there is. That's mm. um, very interesting. Do you have a, a sense also from speaking, actually speaking to your students, do they come and ask you questions about why should I bother, um, how do I vote? Are they asking you a bit about the process and how it works? Mm-hmm. So first, I should say at the Harvard Kennedy School, half of our students are international. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but I, I do routinely talk to uh, uh, Harvard students. I did focus groups for one of the group, uh, 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 for one of the books I was writing a number of years ago. So I've talked to a lot of Harvard college students, but a number of years ago, and they tell me things like um, that they find it hard to vote. And one of the things I sympathize, it is hard to vote in the United States because of our federal system, but also because uh, many um, uh, politicians in this country have tried to make it hard to vote and have tried to suppress voting by certain groups. And student, uh, students are sometimes their vote is suppressed uh, because they kind of get caught up in the ID problem. The, the, uh, they move, they're mobile, they move and they may not have the right identification to be able to vote in the state they're living in. Um, and so I, I, I try to say, you know, there's a lot of so- resources here on campus that can help you understand how to vote. That is the mechanics of voting. Uh, and that's not a small matter here in this country. Um, mm. Then there's the second issue of you know, why they should vote, why they should vote uh, as well. And, and actually knowing, sometimes just telling them, people are trying to suppress your vote. Are you going to let them get away with that? you know, uh, is a good thing. And are they aware of that? Is this is this news to them or is there sort of something that they are already aware of? Some are aware, but most are not. And so we have students who, um, uh, you know, come to campus and think they're going to vote absentee and discover if they've left their home state of Tennessee to come to, to Cambridge, uh, they if and they didn't file that paperwork before they left Tennessee, they will not be able to vote. And so sometimes they discover, uh, you know, to their dismay that that essentially they they want to vote and they can't do it. Mm-mm. You, I think, were involved in setting up the Harvard Votes Challenge in 2018. Do I have that right? Um, I would like to say just that I'm one of the, the many people who uh, helped uh, contribute to the Harvard Votes Challenge. I don't want to uh, claim any more credit than is due. Uh, and I want to signal that the you know we had leadership at all levels. The Larry Bacow, the president of Harvard uh, at the the this earlier time when Harvard Votes Challenge was first set up, you know his first speech to the undergraduate students said, "I'm giving you your first assignment, mm-hmm. your first homework assignment." And it's to go and uh, get uh, registered to vote. Yes, I think I did. I think I did read that in um, in doing some research for this podcast. Can you tell me a bit about the process of setting up the the votes challenge? So, what did you have to do in order to get it underway? Well, one is we did need to stress to everyone involved that we have an obligation as a university to make registration materials. We had to stress this was nonpartisan. We're encouraging people to register to vote. We're not encouraging them what party to vote for. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I have to say the most important people ultimately were the students. And what made it work 
was the, you know, the, some faculty, the leadership, the staff were trying to help and, and did things that really did help. But if the students had not been involved, this would not have worked because mm -hmm. the students are the most effective people to uh, persuade their fellow students to vote. Yes, that all-powerful word of mouth and authentic source of information. I think we we do tend to trust the information that comes from our peer group and the people around us, um, I think. That's very interesting. And, and I believe also that there was a bit that what happened at Harvard then spread further afield and other universities also took up this, um, took up this cause, for want of a better word. So I, I, I guess I would rather say that a, it, what, this was happening in a lot of universities uh, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, like Harvard had a, a very good uh, turnout, right? We had a hot, we, in 2020 elections, and we know this for sure, 70% of Harvard students voted. And that includes people who voted in Massachusetts, but have voted elsewhere. Um, and that is, I mean, in the United, that may not sound good to people in other countries, but in the United States, the states with the highest voting level are states like Minnesota and Colorado. They get 70% turnout. So what that mm -hmm. means is that Harvard students voted at the level that is similar to the highest states in this country. Um, and they and that was coming from a much lower level. There was a 9% increase in student voting here at uh, Harvard between 2016 and 2020. So that's a very, very large increase in a very short time. Mm. We know this because there's this great program uh, based at Tufts University called Ensolve uh, that actually gets permission from universities to to literally cross our student records, preserving confidentiality with national voting records. And so we actually have exact numbers about uh, about student voting. Any any university in the country that wants that data can work with this Ensolve at Tufts to get that data. That sounds very powerful. You do lots of things at, at Harvard to encourage um, um, voting behaviour. Do you think that there's a, or do you have a sense that there's a knock-on behaviour that that persists through through the students' lives? I mean, we all know that you know, we vote through our lifetimes. We vote in many elections, and it's a if you're a habitual voter, it's a it's a habit. Do you think that what's going on, or what you've done at Harvard, has been successful in maybe setting people up as voters for life? Well, the research indicates that, that once you vote once, you're more likely to vote again. And that, it, as you say, it be, it's part of an identity. You get you get an identity, I'm a voter, and then you, you do it. Also, I think ultimately, though it's hard to first register to vote, once you get the hang of things, uh, it becomes not that hard. Um, mm. and, and you sort of know your way around, uh, especially if you're voting in the same place. Mm. Um, so yes, I do think, and I think this data from the survey I told you that college graduates are the most likely to vote suggests that all this campaigning that happened in colleges uh, in the last uh, you know eight years has made a difference. Mm, mm, interesting. We have been living through a massive rise in the use of AI. We've been writing about it a lot on THE and how it's being affecting university uh, assessment and. Uh, course delivery and all sorts of things, every aspect really. Do you have a sense that this is also going to have an effect on the way that people behave around this election or the way they view the process? Uh, 
we've already seen the use of disinformation, uh, AI-generated disinformation in the New Hampshire primaries. You may have heard about that. People got uh, phony calls, supposedly from, from President Biden, sounded like him, telling people not to vote in the primary. Yes, I did. It's remarkable technology. Yes. And so I think, the, again, the good news about the young people that, that we've been working with is they are much more knowledgeable about technology than most of, of us are. And uh, so I think they're a little more savvy mm -hmm. about uh, disinformation. I think college students in particular have a lot of ways to, uh, they have a lot of access to um to, to good information. They know how to get good information and they may be more savvy about how to distinguish between uh, false uh, news and uh, true news. Um, mm. We work on this issue. Uh, uh, I always assign an article in class that shows that, you know, people spread false news. I mean, as bots, bots, we, th we want to blame it all on bots, you know, but but there's a lot of false news that are being spread by people who just don't don't fact check before they retweet something or, or forward something. And so we that's one thing we try to talk about as well is that that we that all of us can be spreaders of false news unless we make an effort. Mm. Well, certainly one of the themes that's really come through in the resources that we've been publishing on campus is that AI has really highlighted the need for critical thinking and looking at sources of information, which is exactly what you're, you're saying now. So not just for producing a paper, but for actually going out and exercising your right to vote. Yes. Yeah. There was a phrase that, that jumped out at me at the, in, that, in that Ash Centre interview where you talked about the right to vote and a responsibility and also some of the pushback that you received was the right not to vote. Um, how do you see the difference between those two rights? So um, when I did these focus groups with students, they um, many of them uh, uh, had acted as though maybe they had a right not to vote, right? And, they, uh, and um, when I started presenting on this issue, I really was persuaded that we should not talk about it that way. You have a right to vote. It's in the Constitution multiple times. You have a choice not to vote. Okay. Mm -hmm. You do not have a right not to vote. You know, rights are morally or legal or moral or legal entitlements. They're special entitlements that are given to you. Okay. And the other duties of citizenship in the United States, you know, are not optional. If they call you for, uh, you know, jury duty or ask you to pay taxes, you know, you don't get to say, I have a right not to pay taxes. I have a right not to do jury duty. You don't actually, mm -hmm. in fact, you can, be, you can be sanctioned if you don't do other duties of citizenship. So it's, it's, why would we think that somehow this easiest duty of citizenship, easiest in the sense of the time it takes of, of, of the right to vote, would you would have a right not to vote. It's nowhere in any document. And so we have to say, you know, you have a choice. You can do that. I'm not going to privilege it. I'm not going to privilege that choice, which I think is a bad choice, with the the, the name right not to vote. Mm, mm. We There was a bit of dialogue in that similar vein around during COVID, I think, about people's right to choose not to do to do things like become vaccinated, for example, or wear masks or um, all sorts. I wanted to just say along that line that the Ash Center interview read is actually based on a, on a book I wrote 
called The Hidden Face of Rights Towards a Politics of Responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly what you were just saying. It's a notion that we always like to talk about our rights, but every right requires responsibility. So if we have the right to vote, the state has responsibility to make sure the voting machines uh, are there uh, so that, that we can exercise our right. But sometimes the responsibilities rest with the rights holder. Right. So we have simultaneously a right to vote and we have a responsibility to vote in my mind. Right. Mm. Uh, under democracy. Um, and that's another reason why I don't like to say you have a right not to vote. No, you have a right to vote. You have a responsibility to vote and you have a choice uh, that we permit you in this country not to vote. Yes, yes. Well, in Australia, voting is compulsory, but people still choose. There are there is still a, a, a section of of eligible voters who choose who choose not to vote um, and I'm always quite interested in that in that behavior um, I just wanted to say you know Brazil that much of Latin America an area I study has also the obligatory voting but the Brazilian voting machines you still have to go and you have two different buttons that you can choose to exercise uh, your decision uh, your choice not to vote. Um, and the good news about that is that it isn't an easy choice. Mm. You know, the, the dilemma about saying, you know, I, I, I choose not to vote. It just said it's a very, it's a very um, easy choice to make, you know, it's perhaps a lazy choice to make, you know. And so at least in Brazil, you have to go to the polls anyway. And you have to, if you feel strongly about not voting, then you have to push that button. But you can't like stay home, watch TV and somehow say I'm exercising my right not to vote. Mm, that sounds like the rationale that's used around organ donation. I can't remember when it happened, but somebody worked out that if you get people to opt out rather than opt in, you get a higher, you get a higher participation. Human psychology, always very, very interesting. I'm going to give you one last, uh, one last question before we come to the end of our time together. I could ask you many, many more. Um, how are you feeling about the state of democracy? We can just talk about the, the United States, but you have a lot of experience with democracies all around the world. You can approach this question however you like. Uh, I am concerned about the state of democracy in the world. All of the databases that we have at our disposal show that the so-called third wave of democracy is over, uh, that there is no fourth wave, and not only that, the democracy is in um uh, is stagnating and in some cases reversing in parts of the world. Okay, mm. so I'm very concerned about that. Um, it's important to not, you know, some people go democracy's in free fall all over the world. That's the that's not what the data shows. The democracy went up in the third wave, it flattened out, and now it is it is declining, and it's and we should worry about that. Okay, but mm. that's different than that's different than free fall. All the more important then that we value. Uh, and try to protect our democracies, right? And one way we do that is through exercising our right to vote and our responsible right to vote, our well-informed right to vote, using the best you know, information we have to make our choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so yes, democracy, you know, democracy just doesn't exist uh, without people's commitment to democracy. One of the things that sustains democracy around the world is people believing in it, committing to it and working for it. And if we stop believing in democracy, working for democracy, uh, we risk losing 
our democracies. Mm. Well, that's a slightly sombre note to finish on, but it does, I think, underline the importance of of us participating as, as democratic, um, active of citizens. Thank you so much for your time today, Catherine. I have learnt a lot from speaking to you and it's been terrific, um, a terrific conversation. So thank you. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.